This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Turning a New Leaf, where we discuss the changing face of Canada as it prepares to legalize and regulate recreational cannabis across the country. Turning a New Leaf is produced by the Village Soundcast Network, and I'm your host, Sean King. Enjoy. So here we are, episode 21 of Turning a New Leaf, and some big news this past week in the industry, and today's guest is here to help us talk about some of that news, and we're joined by Alan Rewak, who's the Executive Director of the Cannabis Council of Canada, or I guess C3, as you've called it with me, Alan, and... Uh, the Cannabis Council of Canada is the leading organization of Canada's licensed producers of medical cannabis, and the mission is to act as the national voice for their members in their promotion of industry standards, support the development, growth, and integrity of the regulated cannabis industry, and serve as an important resource on issues related to the safe and responsible use of cannabis for medical and non-medical purposes. Up until recently, I'd never heard of the Cannabis Council of Canada, which is just another example of all of the new things happening as a result of this new and booming industry. So, Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Sean. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Alan, I'm going to start off by by saying, as I was just mentioning, I've never heard of the Cannabis Council of Canada, and it seems like it's recently new. So can you just start maybe by telling us a little bit about that? Well, I'm not surprised that we're, we're relatively new to the party. In the This is a new and evolving industry, and up to April of 2018, there was actually three primary stakeholder releases that were talking to the government, to uh, the media, to each other. Uh, to try to come up with better policies that make this industry successful in you know, achieving our shared goals of keeping cannabis away from kids and profit away from organized crime. So there was, of course, Canopy Growth Corporation. I'm sure you're going to ask me some uh, questions later about their recent news this week. Yeah. And they are Canada's largest producer of medical cannabis and, hope, and soon recreational cannabis under C45. Yeah. Fabulous company, uh, really committed to communities and a very strong voice in making good public policy. And then there was the Canadian Medical Cannabis Council, which did amazing work advocating for patients and medical use and includes some incredibly visionary companies like the Green Organic Dutchman, Kronos Group, Tilray, Delta 9. And then there was the Cannabis Canada Association, which included Afria, Medrelief, Aurora, and amazing companies like that. And in December of 2017, I was brought on as an interim executive director of the Old Cannabis Canada Association, and we started talking to each other, and we realized that we had so much in common, and the industry needed to work together in a common way at a national level to support each other and to support the government in, in getting policies that worked seamlessly in a very tight timeline. And so through a negotiation, we actually amalgamated, thanks to the leadership of all three of those stakeholder groups, mm-hmm. into the Cannabis Council of Canada, and that was formalized in April. So we're... We are now the single national focused voice of licensed producers. Our membership includes cultivators and, and sellers of medical cannabis and soon recreational cannabis. And it's almost 80% of the cultivation in Canada today. So we're really proud of that. And we're proud of supporting our members and our government to get ready for the new day that comes on October 17th. Yeah. So you were talking about being brought on. I'm, I'm curious to know what, what, before you entered the cannabis industry, what were you doing? 
Uh, well, it's it sounds a little crazy. I was working primarily for police unions, uh, for victim <laughs> service providers, and for uh, wow. VAW uh, uh, Violence Against Women Shelters, working for uh, as a partner at a great company called Pathway Group. Yeah. A small government, well, mid-sized government relations and communications consultancy based out of Toronto. Yeah. And I wanted to get involved in this business because I really believe in what we're doing in communities. If, if you go to Smith Falls, if you see what Organogram and Greg and Ray are doing, to see the investments and the, the opportunities of the foundational anchor industry mm-hmm. that are being created. It's making Canada, Ontario, and every great province in this country better. And when we go through a lot of these communities that have seen those anchor industries pull away, they struggle. And cannabis and this industry is filling that void. And, and simply put, I wanted to be a part of it. So you sought out, is this a role that you sought out or something in this space? Was was you were actively looking for that? I very much so. I, I was working in government relations, as I said, and so I worked on contract with a, a good company called New Strike, based out of Brantford, Ontario, Yeah, uh, the parent company for Up Cannabis. So I worked with them as they did their RTO and launch and uh, announced their investors and their partnership. <clears throat> and then when that contract wound down, I actually had the honor of serving on the Cannabis Canada Association board. So as that was winding down, they asked me to help fill in a, a void on what was intended to be a short-term basis. And through the discussion, yeah. Uh, when we managed to amalgamate, I was really honored at the AGM when they offered me the permanent ED job. And wow. I was very pleased to take it. So you had must have had some like I'm I'm interested now in, in the in the apparent passion that you had for the industry, even before many knew that it was going to be the industry it's becoming. Where did that come from for you? Um, some things I'm not going to admit on a podcast, but also recognition that 20% of our population is consuming cannabis today. I mean, this is something good Canadians are choosing to do. And I have a personal aversion and deep dislike of organized crime. I think it's a cancer in our society. Yeah. I want that. I want that out of our business. And as someone who believes that cannabis consumers, including most people who are working in the gray market, we want to build it into a legal market are good people. And these are not people who want $2 of a $10 spend to go to someone who is engaging in activity that includes human trafficking, loan sharking, wow. the selling of fentanyl. I don't want to support those activities. I want, I want to be able to consume cannabis as a legal adult consumer yeah. and have my dollars support great companies, good jobs, and build hospitals, roads, and long-term care homes not uh, support illicit operators in our marketplace. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I can hear your... I think most Canadians (laughs) feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they're starting to. I mean, I think there are definitely some that have the same sort of passion for it that you do. I'm not sure initially if everyone did. And and that was going to lead me to my next point, which was this idea that it sounds to me like you have a, a very determined belief that the reasons that the liberal government wants to legalize and regulate are, are, are true and will happen and, and will be effective. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. And it's going to take some time to get there, but I mean, I'm, I'm creeping up to 40. I have more gray hairs than I care to admit, but <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, alcohol was far harder to get than cannabis was. If you yes. wanted cannabis, it was two lockers down. If you wanted alcohol, you waited yeah. towards someone you thought was cool and obviously wasn't cool coming back from university who would be stupid enough to buy you a bottle. Yeah. Um, I want to make cannabis harder for kids to access. And I think this legalization and the process of ending the failed prohibition will accomplish that goal. Yes. It's going to take some time, but if we work together in a Canadian way, which is working together towards a common goal, we're going to win, as yeah. we always do. 
It's funny you say that. We, we've had a number of conversations on this show, particularly with uh, parents, you know, who are concerned about what this means for their kids. And, and that's the thing that's been coming up. It's, you know, I've always brought that up. It's like we're acting like your kids don't have access to cannabis now. And, and I've been saying the same thing. It's definitely easier in, in high school to get your hands on a gram of weed than it is to get a, a case of beer, you know. Um, I don't know. Best way to ruin a joke is to make it a dad joke. Best way to keep kids smoking uh, from consuming cannabis is to make it cool with the parents. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, I suppose there's some truth to that. Uh, well, look, I, I'm I'm very quickly uh, getting a sense of your your commitment and passion to this, and it's kind of inspiring. But let's talk about the news of the past week, and we'll start with um, we'll start with uh, the changes to the distribution model that Ontario has recently made. So for anyone listening and doesn't hasn't heard about this, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Alan, but initially the government of Ontario was going to do what a lot of the provinces in the country have done and, and use the government distribution model of the liquor stores, or they were going to have a separate store, were they not? Well, Ontario was going to follow a, a crown model, kind of similar to what the SDCQ uh, in Quebec is doing, in, right. in that they were going to be government-owned stores. And, and I know obviously you're based in Halifax, but if, if you're in Ontario and you want to buy a bottle of scotch, um, you're going to the LCBO, right. which is the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. Yeah, They were going to rule out cannabis sales through a very similar model, through what was called the Ontario Cannabis Store, right? Uh, for both bricks and mortar retail and online sales. And that was determined and announced under the previous government. Now, our new premier has looked at the situation, and I, I really think he's made the right call. Mm-hmm. Um Simply put, there. I mean, if you look at Toronto today, there's 80 to 120 active dispensaries operating illicitly right now. Now, a lot of them are staffed by good people who would love to be part of the legal marketplace, and we want them to stop operating in the gray market and come over to our side and work hard because there's a lot of places for that skill set. What we don't want is organized crime controlling any of this, and we want to have a very clear line on a very tight GPP quality control production process so that people know what they're getting and they know it's relatively safe. Yeah. Um, we didn't have enough stores, even under maximum rollout of 150 stores in Ontario to really compete against a, a, a market that's entrenched and well-funded like that. Um, and unfortunately, that would allow for that side of the industry to, to continue. And I think by harnessing the power of government, which is really ideally suited to regulate and control, yeah. and the potential of the private sector, which can carry the risk and spend the money, Premier Ford has actually found the best system. And this is a very similar system to what Alberta has done, what Manitoba has done, and in fact is what the majority of provinces have done. Six out of, of all provinces have adopted some sort of a hybrid model right. or a model that leans more to the private sector. So he, they completely changed the model. They're now going with a private sector model. <clears throat> and, and now what I understand is that, so when it goes legal in October, people in Ontario will, will be able to buy online only legally, correct? Yes, absolutely. The OCS has built, uh, in partnership with Shopify, a pretty impressive retail online retail system. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see, as a citizen, some of the you know, innovative age gating and verification technology they've integrated into it. It's yeah. quite a, from what I'm hearing, there's quite a lot of very sophisticated, powerful tools that are underneath the, uh, the page, so to speak. Yeah to ensure the kids that aren't able to surreptitiously access it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to be clicking on the OCS website on the 17th myself. Yeah. Um, and I look forward to seeing it work. 
But we do know that people want bricks and mortar. They need that sensory yeah, experience yeah. of talking to a human being. We need that to achieve our goals. And by partnering with the private sector, we're going to get there. Um, we think that the government is making the right call. We'd like to see them allow for the companies that have the greatest experience in the space, specifically licensed producers, to have a, uh, a role in that marketplace and, and operate somewhere around storefronts. Yeah. And considering that the majority of all licensed producers in Canada are based in Ontario, we'd love to see them allow farm gate sales. We've got a great opportunity in secure facilities that are already Health Canada approved to really act as a draw in a very secure and safe and discreet way mm -hmm. that will, I think, create some real tourism opportunities in the southwestern part of Ontario. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, I, I think I read that they're planning to have up to 500 licenses in place by the spring. And I guess... That's speculative. We really don't know at yeah, this point. Yeah. And is that... I've seen that report in the media itself. Do you think that that's a that's a um, an attempt to like? I have a couple of questions about this now, and, and one of them I'm curious about any backlash related to the delay now in the storefront and and how people have reacted to that. I, I haven't yet seen anything, and then I'm also curious about. I mean, you were talking earlier about the illegal dispensaries, and I'd have to imagine that some of those people would be looking to apply for some of these licenses. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think they should follow the Ministry of Finance's advice. I think they should stop operating in the gray market and begin planning to be part of a legal system. If you are if you don't have a, a significant criminal record, if you've been charged with possession or something, but you have no linkages to organized crime or any illicit elements in our society, well, then, you know what? Uh, I don't see any reason why a 21-year-old kid who worked in a dispensary part-time in the summer should be prohibited from working in a private retail store. Yeah. I have no personal reason why why someone who was working in MMAR and was operating a clinic that didn't provide direct cannabis to people, right. but was really just providing advice, they should be part of the system. We need to bring this out of the darkness and into the sunlight because sunlight's a pretty darn good disinfectant and it's going to help <laughs> clean up this industry and make sure that we're doing things the right way. I'm getting the sense you spend a lot of time talking about this. I love it. I, it drives my fiance crazy. <laughs> Man, we could. We're going to Tapas tonight. I'll be spending three hours on this. Yeah, <laughs> I was just gonna say we could probably do this all afternoon. Is I'm I'm similar to you. I, I'm fascinated by the subject and you know the constant movement and changes that are happening um, as we speak. Just hanging on this uh, dispensary thing for a minute. You know, you talk about the 21 year old who worked there part time. One thing I hadn't really considered. It you just made me think of was, let's say that there is a dispensary owner um, who's currently operating illegally, and that owner says, yeah. and you may not have the answer to this, but that owner says, you know what? Now that we're going to do a retail, a private model, man, I, you know, I want to, I want to be above board on this. I want to go and apply for the license. What's going to happen to someone like that who walks into or 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 begins to go through whatever the process is they're supposed to go through, and someone finds out they they have been operating illegally? Is that going to be a problem for them? Do you think? Well, that's a decision the government's going to have to make. I right. mean, obviously, we are very strongly committed to making sure that you know, organized crime and elements like that are kept out of every aspect of the business. Our right. entire purpose of this is of ending this failed prohibition is to keep cannabis away from kids and profits away from organized crime. Right. This is not about party time. This is about better regulating something 20% of our population is consuming. Yeah. Yeah. So from my, from my perspective, I, all I could say to your listeners and to the general population is listen to Vic Fidelli. He was exceptionally clear. If you're operating in the gray market now and you want to be in the legal market, stop. 
shut yeah. it down. Yeah. Start planning. Comply. And do it the right way. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, that sounds a little more onerous. It, it's not comply. It's talk to us. A right. consultation is starting. So it's not, this is what it's going to be. Yeah. It's, we want to work with the private sector. We want to harness that potential and save money for taxpayers. Yeah. We want to keep cannabis away from kids. We want to keep organized crime. How do we do that together? Yeah. So That's what's the, the reaction been? Has, has it been? Exceptionally positive. Yeah. Exceptionally positive. I mean, the markets did respond, to be quite frank, a little negatively for 24 hours, but the yeah, markets are not that. always rational. Yeah. By I, and large, this is a very good thing for the industry because if we're allowed to operate storefronts, it allows us to better communicate with our customers and our clients. It allows us to better ensure that the product is controlled and kept away from kids. Uh, we do have to find balance to ensure that mark, the market is balanced between small players and big players and everybody has a, role, a, a chance to succeed. But if we all go into this with the spirit of collaboration and doing this the Canadian way, as Premier Ford has opened up the door to do, I think we're going to get this right. And it's going to allow more storefronts in more communities discreetly in a way that really age gates this and takes it out of the, the gray market faster and into a legal regulated market that delivers wealth and yeah. social benefit to Canadians much more quickly. What is the Canadian way? You've referenced that a couple of times, and, and, and I think you're the first person that's, that's sort of used that phrase in, in the discussions that I've been having. What is that to you? Peace, order, and good government. <laughs> we knew we had a problem. The problem was 20% of our population was buying something that we, at one point, poorly, said should be illegal and should right. not be accessed. And what we've learned about cannabis is while nothing is free of harm, it has a sure. much lower incidence and risk of harm than alcohol or tobacco, not a class one carcinogen according to the World Health Organization or IARC. We don't yeah. see cases of fetal alcohol syndrome with cannabis, but we need to be cautious because we're still learning about it. Right. And while we will never say cannabis is harm free, we'll never encourage people to try cannabis, we know people are using it with relatively low impacts. So. The Canadian way is, how do we better regulate this? Mm. If this many people out of this population <clears throat> is consuming it, and they're not you know, crazy criminals, then maybe our approach is wrong. So the prime minister had a conversation with Canadians over an election. And that conversation resulted in a majority government, just like Doug Ford did in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And democracy is generally not wrong. And the people have decided, and the prime minister fulfilled his commitment to Canadians by, by saying, we're going to regulate this better, and we are. Doug Ford has followed his commitment to the people of Ontario by saying, we're going to do this better, and we are, and the Canadian way of working together to accomplish that. Wow. Are you uh, ever going to get into politics? Um, used to think about that when I worked in government relations, <laughs> and then I saw how hard these people work Yeah, and decided that despite working 18 hours a day, six days a week, I still get a couple hours on Sunday in this role. Yeah. Um, an MPP, MNA, MLA, MP doesn't. Yeah, right. Always on. You you sound you sound like you would you would fit the role, but I can understand not wanting to do that for sure. Um, well, part of that's because we're on the radio, so you're not seeing my face. Yeah. If, if you saw it, I very much anyone would vote You've got a face for radio. Is that what you're saying? Very much. So. <laughs> um, do you think there's any short-term damage? And, and and maybe this is a stupid question, but you know, I, I remember when I first read the story about it going online into the spring, and I was trying to think about 
you know, individual's reaction to that. And I thought, oh, Jesus, I mean, all this anticipation about being able to walk into a store and buy in October, and now you're being told in Ontario, no, you can only go online, which I'm sure Canada Post loves. We can talk about that later. But do you think there's going to be any short-term damage with this move? Some people will want stores, but I mean, this is a migration and a process. Um, At the end of the day, I mean, people fixate on the final number of Ontario cannabis stores that were proposed, under the 150. Right. But we weren't going to have 150 on October 17th. We would have had four. Right. And so this actually will allow, once an appropriate consultation and dialogue is completed, for us to speed that up. And I think the end result is in a year, year and a half, you'll see more than 150 stores discreetly uh, positioned, securely educated, added value to their commu- uh, communities, and also convenience to their communities. It's a yeah. win-win. And the online channel will remain one that people in certain communities prefer, uh, whether for geography. I mean, if you're in a small town, there may not be the population to support a bricks and mortar location. Um, So there's always that option. And also there's the proven benefit of us knowing it works. For years, we've had an ACNPR approved mail order system. I'm very proud to say, and I think this is a testament to the, the caliber of this industry and to the government of Canada and Health Canada in particular in the regulatory capacity, we've had not we've not had one case of ACPMO diversion. Yeah. At all. Hasn't happened. Yeah. And can you for the folks listening describe ACPMR? ACMPR is the I'm gonna throw a lot of acronyms, forgive me. Yeah. Um, I got it ACMPR wrong. ACMPR is the access to cannabis. The ACMPR is and this is just being too close to the issue. I apologize to your listeners. ACMPR is the Access to Cannabis for Medical Purposes Regulations. All cannabis that's legally produced in Canada uh, and sold through a licensed producer. So you go to your doctor or your medical professional, they give you a script, you, you contact an LP and they mail it to you, is through what's called the ACMPR. There's right. another program called the MMAR, which is sort of a legacy program that allows for a smaller grower to collectively grow medicine for medicinal patients grow their own. But that program's um, very, very different from the ACPMR. And our membership at the council is exclusively made up of ACMPR providers. So these are the canopies of the world, the new strikes, the organograms, the hexos, the companies that you're reading about in the paper who are spending millions in their communities, hiring hundreds or thousands of people. And I never thought I'd say this on the radio, growing great cannabis at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, uh, there's so many things uh, we never thought we'd be saying, and yet here we are. Um, those programs have been around for some time, have they not? They have. I mean, the, the birth of this entire system was a Supreme Court case under Stephen Harper. And courts ruled that patients had a right. They had a right to access medicinal cannabis. Right. And so that's what gave birth to this industry. And it's gone through several iterations. It's slowed down. It's sped up. And as we've moved toward a better regulatory environment, uh, that speed sort of hit light speed. And it will continue to accelerate as we move towards edibles. Now, we have, again, sorry for the acronyms. Now, we have a new framework coming in, which is C45. That's the Cannabis Act. Mm-hmm. And under the Cannabis Act, the medical system has been preserved for a minimum of five years, um, but we believe it should be per, uh, preserved permanently. Uh, we have seen the benefit patients have received uh, for certain disorders from medicinal cannabis. I talk to so many people that inspire me whose lives have been changed for the better. Mm-hmm. And to tell these people to basically go to a liquor store to get medicine is the wrong way to go. Right, I'm grateful for the Prime Minister demonstrating wisdom and, and, and thoughtfulness, including that exemption and keeping the medical system. 
but we believe the federal government has to just make it permanent and work right. at additional distribution channels for patients in a very tight, gated environment to communicate with medical professionals to get access to the medicine they need. Yeah. In a zero-rated tax-free environment, just like any other drug. Because I think it's wrong that you can go to your doctor and get an opioid for free, and yet yeah, you're right. paying for your paying tax on medicinal cannabis for spasticity or cere- or like types of CP or, or these kind of things. It's, yeah, it's yeah. just not the right way to do it, but we'll get it right. It'll take some time, but we'll get there. You know, I've never really thought about this before and, and, until now. And, you know, we, we've talked about, again, your passion for what's happening is, is maybe got me thinking about this a little bit. And, I wonder about what it was about Trudeau and in his exposure or his family upbringing or whatever the case might have been that made him go, we have to do this. Now, we've all heard the spiel. I mean, and we know that the, the motivations and, and, and black market and keep it out of, of kids, kids' hands. But I wonder what it was about him that took it took him to do this. Do you have any insight into that? Well, I mean, we're not having beers later on today, but from my observations of the guy and his leadership, yeah. I, and I don't want to sound fawning. I mean, I'm, I'm, I respect all leaders in our political parties, but I'd say it's courage. Yeah. Um, for 96 years, we've prohibited this. Yeah. And to be quite frank, it's been a dumb experience. Uh, it hasn't worked. Uh, I think Nancy Reagan was a wonderful person, but the Reagans were wrong on South Africa and they're wrong on the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. And well, they picked the wrong drug, the I think. Prohibition of, well, the prohibition of cannabis has, has actually led to social harm. And it took someone with a bit of chutzpah to stand up and yeah. say, well, this isn't working. Yeah. And that takes a lot of courage because when you get into a hole and you keep digging, right, and which is what we did collectively as a society, it's hard to get back out of it. And we dug such a lane in, in trying to demonize cannabis, which yeah. really was undeserving of the demonization it faced. Um, it took someone to say, stop, let's yeah. try this a different way. And it's exactly what we're doing. And we're already seeing it's working. Yeah. Have, have you ever had to face somebody who um, is as passionate about this being a bad idea as you are about it being a good one? Often. And about 50% of the time, they come over to my side at the end. Yeah. Because we find out we agree with the same things. Yeah. They come out. I, I remember us speaking at a conference at Okra, which is the Ontario Good Roads Association. I'm yeah. sitting next to a really smart guy who I've known for a while named Joe Coteau from the Ontario Chiefs of Police Association. Now, Joe's a really smart, committed guy who wants to empower police for, uh, services and make sure that Canada's better, yeah. in Ontario in particular. And we basically had agreement on almost all issues because I want to support our police partners. I don't want to, I don't want people driving while intoxicated on any substance, including cannabis. Right. And there was a rural, uh, a smaller town municipal official who stood up and he spoke of his experience as a high school teacher. And he spoke of cannabis being a gateway drug. And at first I was, some people in the audience were actually rather dismissive of it. Right. And I, yeah. I generally didn't like that. I believe and even if you disagree with someone, you respect the person speaking. And the more he talked, the more he told the story. And, and the story he was talking about wasn't actually about cannabis as a gateway drug. It was about poverty and abuse and right. kids drinking at 11 years old or consuming cannabis at 11 years old. Well, right. an 11 year old should not be accessing any intoxicant. And sure. that speaks to a deeper failure that often is linked to economics, yeah, yeah. Uh, the social environment and everything associated with that. And yeah. so, after talking to that gentleman, well, I don't think he agreed with me entirely. Yeah. I certainly earned his respect and here in mine. 
And we understood that we, even though we might not see eye to eye on this, we're going to agree. We're going to find ways to try to work together. Yeah. And I've had, <clears throat> you know, an interview on the radio yesterday where the same kind of question came up. I answered the same way. We share your beliefs. I don't want kids getting cannabis. I don't want organized crime profiting from this. I want jobs in stable, sustainable, above minimum wage jobs with good benefits in communities across this country that need it. And I want to use those tax revenues to empower our police partners, build hospitals, roads, long-term care facilities. And I want to normalize this product so that we can treat it with the respect and responsibility it deserves. Yeah. I remember um, around the time that Trudeau was talking about this and he was confronted by a woman was on the news. It was quite a while ago and she was kind of irate about the whole idea and really freaking out about the kids and and, and access and all of that. And he just kept saying, and I, I actually, this really struck a chord with me. He kept saying, you have to remember what we've been doing isn't working. You have to remember what we've been doing isn't working. And I mean, she, I don't think she was hearing it, to be honest, but I remember thinking, well, you know, it's a great point. Um, like it or not, um, it's hard to argue with the idea of trying something else, you know, because because he's right. What we've been doing isn't working. So it's uh, it's an interesting point of view for sure. Uh, let's, and I think it's actually the correct point of view. Yeah, yeah. Because it has failed. Yeah. You know, and, and there's a lot of, you know, it's funny. There's a lot of fear around what's going to happen, but there's not much discussion about what's been happening. You know, and I don't know if that's people just kind of turtling and going, just ignoring it because we don't have to talk about it, um, um, which is the other thing I like about what's happening, to be honest. I've said this many times, you know, again, like it or not, this is forcing a lot of things that are going to make it better, whether that be, you know, a safer product, you know, regulated hard, or harder to get for kids, you know, and what they do get will be safer, whatever it is. Workplace policy is another one, you know, and, and it's sort of forcing all of these issues now. And I think uh, up to now, that stuff's just been, uh, you know, we've just been turning a blind eye to it. Well, and I think there's also a bit of a, and I had this conversation with someone, uh, about a year ago, and it was an important one, and one that will stay with me for the rest of my life. And we were actually talking at the end of a very exhausting day about what normalization of cannabis means. And there are people out there who are fearful that normalization means cannabis consumed everywhere, people intoxicated at work. And I would respectfully argue it means the opposite. It means understanding the effects of medical cannabis for specific disorders. Because if someone is consuming a high CBD strain, there's no intoxicating effect on that. Right. But if they're consuming adult consumer use cannabis at 10 in the morning, what this does is actually brings it out of the shadows and allows us to address it. Just like I would never allow for someone to come into my office at 10 in the morning with a beer in their hand and yeah. say, well, it makes me more fun and lively. No <laughs> one's going to tolerate coming with cannabis and say it makes me more relaxed. Well, that's great. I'm not paying you to be relaxed. Yeah, right. Do that on your own. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a certain level of common sense that needs to be applied to all of this, I think, which which in some way I think maybe we've forgotten about in when we get caught up in bylaws and regulations and rules, um, which, uh, you know, is, is – is, I don't know if entertaining is the right word, but but that's what I want to say. It's it's become a bit entertaining to me. And listening to people argue about which store they have to go to get it is, is kind of uh, missing the point, in my opinion. But – um, let's talk this about the most important society. Go ahead. I apologize, Sean. No, no, go ahead. No, I'm just saying this is the most important societal policy shift since the end of prohibition for alcohol. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. 
Yeah. And, you know, even just listening to you say that, it kind of stunned me for a second because whenever I'm reminded of that, it's like, Jesus, this is really happening. Um, and speaking of big things happening, this is the other big news this past week, this $5 billion investment from Constellation Brands into Canopy Growth. I mean, this is big. Um, and, it's and, amazing. Yeah. And it sends a message. You know, it sends a massive message. So what was your take on that? Um I leaned back in my chair at about uh, seven in the morning when the release came in. I let out a big breath and I said, this is wonderful. Yeah. It's good for the industry. It's, it, it, as you said, it speaks to normalization and investment. It's good for Canada. That's $5 billion. Bruce and, and Mark and, and that team are going to be spending in communities, building up great construction jobs. Yeah. Everyone looks at the plant and just the cultivation of it. But when you look at Canadian production facilities, you look at everything that goes into it. That's what supports the local restaurant. That's what gets the right. plumber working. That's what gets the electrician working. And they, these jobs don't stop. They're sustainable. Yeah. So that $5 billion is $5 billion that's going to go in the pockets of good, hardworking Canadians. And at the same time, I don't want to sound facetious, we're going to get a heck of a lot of amazing cannabis as a result, which is a good yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if... I, I remember reading the press release and there's a... I'm not going to get it right. I don't have it in front of me. But there was a comment made about uh, the folks at Constellation Brands recognizing the potential business opportunities and the potential growth. And what struck me about reading that quote was that it's like they've only now realized it. And and in, and part of me, I'm not saying that that's true, but that's the impression I got when I read it. And And part of me starts to wonder if that's kind of what's happening in general anyway, that people are starting to now go, holy shit, there's a massive, massive potential economic boom uh, and 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 sustainable industry that's about to be born, and I feel like it's taken uh, a lot of people a bit of time to actually recognize that. There's been a transition over the last two years, um, and a lot of that is really due to the change or or even the commitment to change the federal law, right uh, under the prime minister. But we um, we have seen a lot more structured investment, and and that really is twofold. That's one. This is really happening. October 17th is happening. C45 yeah. has passed. The regulations yeah. have been proclaimed. We know where this is going. It is now safe and it is legal. Or at least it will be. Right. Secondly, we have a very exciting secondary component of this that people talk about, but I don't think they realize the full impact of from an economic perspective. And, and Constellation Brands, just like Molson Coors with their deal with Hexo, yeah. uh, which is for a uh, hydropocket theory, um, what we're seeing is a recognition that cannabis will, as dried flour, will be a core part of this market. But when edibles and concentrates come online, we will see a fundamentally different modality for consumption begin to take hold. And I think that's good because even though dried flour doesn't have the same negative harmful effects as tobacco, not even close, not a class one carcinogen. In fact, according to Dr. Mark Ware, the speech I just uh, heard a couple of months ago, the only long-term effect that he could identify in a meta-analysis of the data from the combustion of cannabis is an increased risk of upper, if I remember correctly, upper bronchial infections. And that risk subsides when you stop smoking cannabis. Right. That being said, smoking anything normalizes the smoking of tobacco. Right, and right. I unfortunately smoke tobacco, and that is very likely how I'm going to die. It's addictive, <laughs> yeah. dangerous, and I'm. It's a disgusting habit. Right, and the denormalization of the consumption of tobacco is something we've collectively worked on for a generation, and it's largely worked. If I go to a dinner party now and I go in for a cigarette, I am 
you know, this is not like I can sit in someone's living room with shoulder pads in 1982. This is a different world. I'm treated yeah, right. like a pariah. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And if cannabis for consumption is normalized too much, that could lead to an uptake in smoking. We don't believe there's any kind of causal effect, but it's something because of our deep concern and commitment to the health of our patients and our clients is something we don't want to encourage. So I think you're going to see a lot of new, really innovative drink technology come out with edibles, yeah. um, more safe ingestion methods, gel caps, uh, sublingual wafers. You'll see all kinds of neat stuff that even though the risk isn't there according to the science, um, will give people that comfort. And also, if you're not a tobacco smoker, make the experience a little bit more seamless because some people don't like that physical act of combustion. Yeah, right. You, you mentioned the science. It's, it's funny. That's come up as a topic a couple of times uh, on this show. And earlier on, I mean, this is one of the things that I like about legalization is there will be a point, if it hasn't already started, and it sounds like maybe it has, where because of legalization, the testing can be done. Um, the data can be collected and we can start hearing about actual informed uh, facts and science related to the outcomes and impacts of, of cannabis usage. I know early on, I think it was a third episode, we had a doctor on the show and um, I raised the question around this idea that depending on who you talk to, uh, you know, people would say, oh, there's huge uh, um, health benefits to using cannabis. Or someone else might say, oh, there's huge health risks in um, cannabis usage. And and the evidence that they, they pull that from, and I use the word evidence very carefully, um, seems to be the anecdotal evidence that supports their own beliefs in whether or not this is a good or bad product. And one of the things that he said that was interesting to me was that we don't necessarily have, we being the doctors, don't necessarily have the scientific evidence in the way that they would describe that or need to define that, that would be required to make actual claims. Um, you know what I'm saying so far? Oh, totally. And, and that's directly linked to the prohibition of cannabis. Right. Um, you could not find grant money up until very recently as an academic, and you would be very limited in other grant money yeah. on any studies related to cannabis unless you were trying to prove that it was addictive and would kill you. <laughs> yeah, right. Right? There was lots of money available right. up until the 90s to try to fund that. Couldn't yeah. find anything in 50 years. Yeah. But they got a lot of money to study it. Isn't that funny? Um, the real is changing, but we want good science and good science takes time. Yeah. And the DIN process, the drug identification number process for Health Canada does take time too. And we are very encouraged by uh, the federal government statement in the last budget where they referenced a uh, in process or something that would be reflective of the unique characteristics of cannabis to ensure that medical patients can access zero rated one day medical cannabis for specific disorders. And yeah. we're hopeful that Health Canada will target a few select uh, illnesses or conditions that we know have a pretty causal effect and allow those small populations to access certain types of medicinal cannabis at a zero rated level because I yeah. don't think. You know, I, I don't want to name a name without talking to her, but I've I've gotten to know a very inspiring mother with a really cool 11-year-old kid who's got a specific condition. This yeah. kid was on benzoites and opioids. Yeah. He, he was, in essence, being tortured. Um, not with malice, but the doctors were doing what they could with the tool sure. they had. Yeah. But the kid was tortured. And thankfully, because of the specific type of spasticity and disorder, there is a, a, and there was just some articles on this in the paper as well, um, a, a pretty, not completely concrete to like clinical 
baseline trials, but pretty, pretty in it, pretty concrete benefit of a high CBD interaction with like a moderate THC level in it. Mm-hmm. And I had child's been on oil and he's gone from like 106 seizures a day. Imagine witnessing that as a mother. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Five, six, 10. Now yeah. that's not great. Doesn't solve his problem, but it certainly improved his quality of life. I was just going to say. When I look at a parent, <clears throat> well, I, I remember when I was at university, I worked at a place called the Transitional Training Center in Hamilton. And there was a gentleman there who was a resident. And he was visually impaired and had a, a bit of a cognitive challenge. And his mother would dress up in her Sunday best uh, every weekend and come visit him. And the love was so palpable between his mother, who was a little over 80, and this man. Yeah. And her greatest fear was who's going to take care of my kids. And the love a mother has for a child, particularly when a child is distressed or in pain at any age, is more powerful than gravity. And if we're able to provide tools to help a family in a very specific context to do so. Yeah. It's a pretty awesome way to make a living. Yeah. You know, that's, um, it's an incredible perspective. Um, and one that I, I suppose airs on the side of here's what's right about all of this. And, and it was a similar example that I used when talking to the doctor. I mean, we've seen, you, you know, you can go online and find videos of, of kids getting, um, you know, oil rubbed on their lip you know, in the middle of a seizure and, and literally in real time, watch how quickly um, those things, it subsides, right? And, and it, it very clearly has an effect. And and the debate at the time was, you know, we see this anecdotal evidence and, and we know that there's something happening, but that scientific kind of proof of why and what doesn't exist yet for them to be able to willingly go out and say, yes, this is what it does. Yet we all seem to know that it has a positive impact. It's a fascinating uh, topic, and um, and one that I look forward to finding out, you know, in, in however many years it takes to get the evidence for the for people to actually stand up and say, this is now what we know. That's going to be that's going to be incredible. Well, I, I completely concur. But I do also want to caution that on the other side of the spectrum within the cannabis community. Yeah. There are times where people go a little too far. Of cannabis course. is not a panacea. It's yeah. an intoxicant. It yeah. is. It has. It's an incredibly complex thing that interacts with like over 700 receptors in the human brain. Every part of the human brain is light, lit on fire by cannabinoids. And we're yeah. finding more and more about it every day. But it doesn't, it's not a magic cure for everything. Sure. And yeah. anyone who tells you it is, is wrong. Yeah. It has benefits for certain medical disorders. You've got to be cautious in it. It has a relatively low risk of harm uh, compared to other intoxicants for adult consumer use. But it's not harm free. And it yeah. shouldn't be treated that way. It should be treated with respect and responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Um, switching gears for a minute, uh, Alan, I know that, um, you know, part of the mandate, at least according to what I understand from what I've read about your organization, is to act as the voice for the members related to all things. So growth, development, industry standards, et cetera. And when I read that, um, the first thing that popped into my head was your, what your feelings are on the regulations related to packaging and marketing. Now we know we know it's pretty limited, um, and and you know there's all kinds of opinions on that. But I'm curious about what you think about that. I think that the government has been somewhat overly cautious, mm-hmm. and I believe that if we were looking at a new product category, if there were no Canadians, say there were say there were five thousand Canadians who consume cannabis every month, mm-hmm. then I would actually say plain packaging makes perfect sense. Yeah, right. But they're not. 
we got 20% of our population consuming packed cannabis. Yeah, yeah. Legalization and ending this prohibition and keeping cannabis away from kids, profits away from organized crime, this is about migrating an existing and robust market to a legal framework. So to do that, companies, brands, they need to be able to have a conversation about what people are buying in a very direct way. Because I don't know if you'll admit this, but we've all done secret shopping at dispensaries to see what that environment is like. Yeah. And I see an interaction point where people are talking about the straight for the products. And that's what consumers have come to expect. <clears throat> if it's a, a, an, a box that has no, you know, very limited branding on it, and a store staffer is scared to communicate about what that strain is like, even from an information level, which the act allows, mm-hmm. people are going to buy products that are the wrong products. And they're going to leave from the legal channels believing that the illicit market cannabis is the better way to go. And that's just going to give a shot in the arm to the black market. Right. Um, but we do recognize we're in year one of implementation, right? We're just rolling out this adult consumer use process. And we trust the prime minister when he says this is a process. Yeah. We want to learn from the first stages of implementation. We want to make sure that the business environment fosters licensed producers to continue to grow and, you know, pay back some of the capital we've invested in our communities. Um, and we think over time, especially as edibles come in the marketplace, we need to have, I think, more appropriate branding and packaging rules to ensure that consumers know what they're buying. They know it's legal and they know exactly what the experience will be for them in a very subjective way. Yeah. Um, and that will just build up this legal sector even even more. So is your sense that it'll that it might change over time? I believe it will. I'm not there's certainly no indication from the government of that at this point. We we just got through this first goalpost. Yeah. Um, but I think it's gonna have to because what we're gonna find come October seventeenth, um, some people are kind of thinking this will be like uh a horror movie where all laws fall out the window. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's going to change. No, I don't think so. Nothing's either. going to change. Yeah. I let, there's some wonderful interviews of some very polemical type of news agencies in the States trying to speak with Colorado police officers after legalization, trying to get them to tell horrible stories. And they're like, nothing happened. They don't have any. Nothing happened. Yeah. Because the sky is not going to fall. And that's what normalization is going to look like. And then we'll work together to migrate that illicit market to the legal marketplace. We'll make sure that profits are kept away from uh, organized crime. We want to make sure cannabis is away from kids. We also want to work and ensure that over time, people with simple possession are not burdened with a criminal charge for the rest of their life. I mean, if you're a 20-year-old kid, a uh, 20-year-old kid, and and we got to be honest with ourselves, we still live in a society where some people are treated differently than others. And you're caught with, you know, a quarter of cannabis and at, you've got an officer who at a different time in our history might have been more aggressive and you've got a criminal charge under your belt. That can haunt you. You'll never get a job at an airport. You'll never get a job at the federal government. We need to wipe that clean. And that being said, we need to keep our eyes on people who are, who are affiliated with, working with, aligned or, or part of organized crime. We got to yeah. keep that out of this market. Yeah. Wow. You uh, have sort of made this clear, but um, your personal thoughts on legalization. I think it's a wonderful move for Canada. I think it's going to make Canada better. I think it's, yeah. a, it's a no-brainer. We're taking something that 20% of Canadians are buying that is being used to fund, in some way, at some end of the channel, organized crime that traffics human beings, sells fentanyl to kids, robs, abuses, extorts other human beings in our society, operates as an illicit government in some cases. And 
we're taking that away from them and we're using that to build hospitals, roads, and bridges. Mm-hmm. We're creating jobs in our economy. And we're becoming a global leader in a way that will bring incredible human, social, uh, human economic, and social benefits to this country. It is the biggest no-brainer in policy in perhaps <laughs> human history. And yeah. that's, what took, that's why it took the amount of courage to actually do it. The right. amount of cognitive dissonance that was going on in our society around cannabis 50 years mm-hmm. is mind-boggling and will be look, looked back on by our children as one of the more bizarre episodes in our past. Yeah. Do you have children? No, but i um, having fun trying to make them. <laughs> well, good for you. I'm, I'm happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I often ask that question because, you know, sometimes it's funny when we talk to someone and, and they have very opinionated views on, you know, good or bad about, about what's happening. And then, and then we get to their kids and go, well, what are you going to tell your kids? And sometimes the response is, is fairly different. So I'd be curious to know how that conversation goes for you. But, you know, there was going to be a generation of kids that grow up that never knew that this was an issue in the first place. And I, I, I hope I'm around long enough to see what that's like for, for people that grew up and went, what, what, there was a time when marijuana was illegal? What was that like? That's going to be weird. There was a time when we called it weed. Yeah, right. We called it weed. Right, which the is world an, changes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and that's an interesting point too because even since we started this this podcast, um, I started off talking about it as marijuana, and and I would say I don't know maybe halfway through, started changing it to cannabis, and um, and I don't know what influences maybe do that, but it just felt like when you said cannabis, it didn't have any of the stigma attached to it. You know, when you said marijuana, it felt like we're dirty growing somehow. Up. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're no, we're growing up as a society. I mean. This is a sophisticated product. I mean, it is a plant. Yeah. Um, but the varieties of it, the strange, the subjective experience of it is, is very nuanced. And I don't believe that cannabis, especially dried flower, will ever become beer. Right. It's going to be wine. Yeah. Yeah. You made a comment to me before we, we started recording that I wanted to end on because I thought it was a pretty bold statement. You said the biggest problem with cannabis has been the prohibition of cannabis. Yes. I, I believe that in my bones. Prohibition was an effort to try to get people not to use it. Well, that obviously failed. But what prohibition did do is allow for a very robust, multi-billion-dollar economy to exist below the tax threshold. Right. We allowed it to be held by people who, you know, don't have that same moral compunction to follow the law, and that empowers criminal organizations to do very bad things, like traffic yeah. human beings, sell fentanyl to kids. So what can, what's going to happen when cannabis is legalized is there will be no social harm. There will be social benefit. It's going to be harder for kids to get it. It's going to deal a crippling blow to organized crime. We're going to have to find jobs like normal people and stop doing what they're doing. This is good for our society. And by ending prohibition, we allow only good things to follow. Yeah. Wow. Well, that sounds like a great place to uh to finish our conversation. Alan, it's been uh, incredible chatting with you. Uh, your passion for the industry and, and the reasons we're doing what we're doing is kind of inspiring. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take that with me for sure. Um, so look, I want to thank you for, for joining and, uh, and taking some time to chat with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Sean. It was a blast. I'd love to come on again. Yeah. Well, we might have to do that once, uh, once things happen and are legal and we can discuss how it's going in different parts of the country. And it would be a great idea. We'll sit down once we get on the track for edibles. Yeah, sounds good, Alan. Thank you very much.
Wow, that was a, a, a pretty good chat with Alan. Uh, you know, it's it's um, always interesting to come across somebody who's got that much passion and belief in something as significant as what's about to happen. And I can understand that it's debatable and there are other, other opinions for sure. But, you know, I found myself listening to Alan and, and really, you know, getting kind of excited and, and even more convinced about some of the things that will be right about uh, what it is that's happening in the country. Um you know, I, again, I just want to start off by saying and highlighting his comment that nothing is free of harm. And so when we hear this idea that cannabis, there's no side effect, there's no issue, we got to remember that it, 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 that's not necessarily true. And, and again, his point was nothing is free of harm. So use carefully, use wisely and understand what it is you're doing. I have to admit that after he was done chatting with me, the one thought that came to mind for me was that maybe this cannabis thing is uniting us as a country. I mean, we're, we're kind of doing this alone in the context of other countries on, on the planet, and, and we're doing it in a big way. And, and when he kept saying the Canadian way, the Canadian way, and this notion of peace, order, and good government— I started to feel a bit of pride, you know, for the country that, that you know, I, I think I felt in the beginning that you get caught up in, in the bylaws and, and the changes and, and the provincial issues, and you almost forget the, the big picture. And so I, I find myself kind of wondering, is this cannabis thing going to, in some way, uh, you know, unite this place in a way that, that maybe we haven't been united? Um, again, we will be only the second and certainly the largest country on planet Earth to regulate and legalize all across the country, both uh, federally and provincially. And so there's something to be said for that. Um, You know, I I liked his comment on the packaging and the marketing and this idea that perhaps we've been overly cautious. And maybe there will be a time when that those rules will loosen up and and maybe the money that all these licensed producers have spent on developing that packaging won't be wasted after all. I know before the regulations came out, there was a lot of money being spent on branding and marketing that they can't really use now. But um, perhaps once things settle in and we realize the sky isn't falling and, and, and Canadians respond responsibly, that maybe that's something that will, um, that will lighten up and change and, um, and allow us to sort of um, see what happens with, with, those, with those regulations. I'll just end with this final thought. You know, this idea that the biggest problem with cannabis has been prohibition is an interesting uh, way to look at things. You know, I, I've learned a ton about this space since since the beginning. And, and when I found out that prohibition and the reasons for it were uh, what they were um, and the various stories that come along with that, whether it be, you know, drug companies trying to stop it or, or other companies trying to... to um, get in its way because it was detrimental to their business, whatever the case might be, um, the idea that prohibition wasn't working and that it's time to try something else is is worth thinking about. And uh, and we'll leave it at that. I want to thank Alan. It was a very informative discussion and look forward to maybe catching up with him after things get legal and we see how things go. You're listening to Turning a New Leaf, produced by the Village Soundcast Network. And I'm your host, Sean King. We'll chat soon. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.